It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. On this episode of the Fieldhouse Files, I'm zooming out and talking about the current state of the Pacers and where they're headed with Derek Schultz. And welcome into the Fieldhouse Files, the podcast where I take you behind the scenes with the Pacers, talk to individuals on and around the team, and tell you what you need to know. Well, on today's podcast, Derek Schultz joins to discuss the Pacers' relevance in the indie sports landscape. It's been a tough year not having more than 3,000 fans at games, and interest level is certainly decreasing. We discuss the offseason coaching change and Nate Bjorkren taking over, how this group is underachieving, and then Derek shares why he believes they have a personnel problem and simply cannot afford to run it back next season. See, the Pacers are in a tough spot right now, currently ninth in the East with 14 games left, and at best are probably bound for the play-in tournament. The hope going into this year was to advance past the first round for the first time in a while. Well, that seems to be out the door. This team is not going to advance past the first round. And more and more, I find myself considering the big picture of what this team might look like moving forward and the players you can really build around and the players that kind of match the style that Nate wants to play. They've been an above-average team on road games, 17-14. and 14, Very good, very reasonable. Anything above 500, I, I think you can absolutely accept. But their troubles at home, they've been alarming. Thanks to a win over a horrible OKC team Wednesday night, they finally have double-digit home wins, 10-17. and 17, But only two teams in the league were worse at home. And part of that was scheduling, certainly. It's not ideal, I think, for this group. They would have really benefited with a new coaching staff um, to have more home games early on, to have it front-loaded, because having this finishing stretch with 11 of their final 16 games at home hasn't been ideal. And now the injury bug have impacted them once again. That seems like it's been an ongoing storyline for three-plus seasons now. Most recently, Miles Turner suffered an injury to his right big toe and is deemed out indefinitely. Not good. Sabonis has missed a couple games now with a sore lower back. More ankle sprains on the team now with Goga and McDermott. Jeremy Lamb experiences occasional soreness in his surgically repaired left knee. And then on Wednesday, Jakar Sampson was unavailable because he was suspended by the league for headbutting Spurs guard Patty Mills in the previous game. But we did get something special. We saw something special on Wednesday. First in the morning, O'Shea Brissett, he was second-round G League selection by the Matt. Matt Ants, led them in the G League bubble. He'd been on not one but two 10-day contracts. Well, he finally signed a standard NBA contract. It's for the rest of the season, three years, but only this year is fully guaranteed. It keeps him under control at the Pacers for the next two seasons should they want to continue this relationship. And so far, it's gone better than expected. Wednesday was a career game for O'Shea Brissett, and his boyish smile was evident the entire time. It was special to see, and I'll have more on him coming up. I invite you to follow and read my coverage at FieldhouseFiles.com and look for the Fieldhouse Files daily download on Twitter and on the ISC Sports Network each weekday. Now here's my conversation with Derek Schultz. 
All right, you can hear Derek together with Jay Query for weekly episodes of Query and Schultz on ISC Sports Network or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And Derek joining the show now and wanted to talk about Pacers, where they're at, where they're headed, and why they aren't very interesting to you. You guys brought them up on your latest episode, and you'll you'll mention them from time to time. But quite honestly, with so much going on in the indie sports world, they're not relevant right now to the big conversation, which makes it difficult. Where are you at with this current Pacers group, Derek? Yeah, that's actually a great way to put it, Scott. It's just it's it's a relevance thing. And usually this time of year, there isn't much else going on. Yeah, you got the NFL draft, okay, but the Colts are in the middle of their offseason. This is kind of the dead period for college basketball, so Indiana and Purdue fans can turn their attention to the pro game. This isn't really a baseball market. Most people want to just go to Victory Field and have a Sun King. You know what I mean? Uh, Bingo. Like That's that, me. Instead of really following the team. Um, so I, I think the fact that the Pacers are so uninteresting right now in late April really, really harms them because this is normally uh, their stage where they can just have it all alone, even if they're just a, a decent team. That isn't necessarily going to win a championship, which is, you know, 98% of their teams in their existence, obviously, are contend for one. Um, They would have this stage all to themselves. And and now I think it's a a big missed opportunity. So I feel kind of bad because this isn't a market like Chicago or New York where fans really like piling on bad teams. Like in New York, they love it, even though the Knicks obviously are good this year. (laughs) They love piling on the Knicks or piling on the Jets or Chicago. They love making fun of the Bears. Uh, here, when teams are bad, it, it's almost like you're afraid to be critical because the fans normally aren't super critical of the teams here. But I, I just, Scott, I, I've had this feeling all year long where I've really tried to reinvest myself in the Pacers, and it's just become difficult for a, a myriad of reasons. But the biggest reason, of course, is is the encore product, which really just hasn't been very good at all. I've always said a Pacer season kind of has three waves of fans. At the very beginning, those are your diehards. They're going to watch almost every game, read everything. They're tweeting actively. Then you have those after football season. So, you know, 1st of February, then they finally start to commit their attention. And some basketball fans are even saying, hey, let's push back the NBA season. I just don't have enough bandwidth or enough time to watch both NFL, which is my number one priority for some fans, versus you know NBA. And then the others, like you said, uh, kind of right about after March Madness, all right, I can focus on one basketball um, at a time. And then everything's made even worse, I think, for what I've been told is about 10 to 15% of Pacer fans, meaning they're wanting to watch the games but can't because one of the challenges from the jump this season has been Sinclair's ongoing dispute with your local, mainly streaming options. If you have Comcast, if you have AT&T, you're good. But again, to go back to the larger conversation, you're really having to work to watch this team that isn't a top playoff team, that isn't a contending team. So you would have to go an extra mile even to just invest some of your time, which is even more difficult. Yeah, it's the effort <laughs> that it takes. Because <laughs> right. I've even said that on Twitter, where I've, I've you know aired those grievances. I'm personally, I'm a Hulu person. I previously was a YouTube person, yeah. and I'm not able to watch the Pacers. And you know, people are DMing me and saying, "Well, here's a Reddit stream and all of that." And, and you know, those streams <laughs> can be really unreliable. And I'm not super comfortable, you know, kind of going in through the basement door. And you got five pop-ups, and you're wondering where this browser might take you in about five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, all of that. So, uh, you know, I, I just don't feel super yeah. comfortable about doing all of that. And I just, 
you know, honestly, I, I don't feel like going to all of that trouble. You know what I mean? I just want to sit down on my couch with my dog, hit the remote, and, and boom, there's the game and not have to go crazy kind of looking for it. So it, it stinks. It, it's it, Really, it is kind of the perfect storm for the Pacers this year because um, I, I think post-COVID, and this is a, a topic maybe for a, a different show or a, a different time, I think all sports are getting reevaluated by casual sports fans because I, I think people have reevaluated their priorities in life and, and are realizing, hey, you know, I spent so much time doing this. Was it really worth it? And yes, we still love sports and, and being entertained and all that and, and having that as a distraction. So I'm not saying that that is going off of, uh, you know, everybody's plate or anything like that. But I, I do think that there is maybe a little more built in apathy just because of the challenging year that we're coming off of here. But to not have those fans that are that, that are unpluggers like me on two of the biggest options for you to unplug with Hulu and YouTube mm-hmm. TV, um, it sucks. It, it, and it mostly sucks, Scott, because it's not the Pacers' fault. Like, they have nothing to do with that. You know what I mean? It's, it's one of those things that um, is beyond their control. But I really was hopeful that at some point this year, things were going to click and Sinclair and they would come to the table and find a way to make this deal happen. But the fact that we're basically going to have a lost NBA season because of it is really frustrating. Completely, yeah. It's not going to get resolved this year and who knows how quickly it might. The other thing with the streams that you mentioned, Derek, is it's not like you're not already paying. And that's the hardest part to swallow. I have YouTube TV. I'm paying, yet I'm using my parents' Comcast login to do my job to stream the games on the Fox Sports Go app. And I don't think your casual fans are willing to jump through all these hoops, find a different login. And then you, to the point you made at the jump this last year, it makes you understand where you're spending your time and maybe how you're wasting some time. Um, And you just want things easy and, and that sort of thing. And so probably we're all weeding out something, whether it's, I don't know, an Amazon Prime show or you know whatever it is and so the Pacers are are being hit by that not on their own accord and so that's made things all the more difficult do you find yourself I'm curious listening to Pacers radio network more do you find following more online or just kind of checking up on Twitter occasionally or the end of the game definitely following more online originally I when I started the season knowing that I wasn't gonna be able to watch games I said, okay, well, I'm just going to listen to Mark and, and Slick or Mark and Eddie or, you know, or yeah. Mark Flying Solo, whatever, on, on the radio network. And I, I did that for a while, and it was just tough because I don't have an actual physical radio in my house. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't either. I had to, there, were, there were a couple of nights where I had to go out to my car or I had to be in my car in order to listen to the games, and it just became a little bit too inconvenient for me, even though all of those guys, and, and Pat Boylan included, do, um, do a fantastic job. Um, so I, I originally tried to do that, but now it's been mainly more just following all of you guys, you know, the great work that you do at field house files and the field house files daily download. And I'll read the game recaps. Um, obviously I follow him, you know, uh, Tony East and Jay Michael and, and all the fan blogs, eight points, nine seconds and, and, uh, and places like that as well. So I, I feel like that's the way that I've been kind of trying to keep myself invested in the team but I'll be honest with you Scott I mean this is this is easily the least amount of Pacers basketball I've ever watched probably since mm-hmm. before I moved here probably you have to go back to my days in Connecticut um and it I, I feel like it's the least amount of knowledge I've had about the Pacers in that time but um you know I, I still feel like I know the everyday goings on for the most part thanks to people like you um but yeah I, I feel like I'm 
I feel like I've been kind of out of the loop, but you know what? Uh, in a year like this one, it's probably okay to be somewhat out of the loop with this specific Pacers team. Yeah, and I think it's fine, especially just this year in general, too. Just a lot of things are going on, a lot of things unpredictable. Um, you just got to keep moving forward with all that. And I think, too, with this Pacers season, and, and, I'll, and I'll mention, too, my college, that's how I feel about college basketball. I feel like I did not watch much at all until March Madness, and that was the one thing I sacrificed. So I think we're all um, in that category. And then you go into this Pacers season, you know they're not going to contend for a title. You have a new coaching staff, so that kind of freshens things a little bit. You know it's not, all right, let's run it back all over again. But you do have mostly the same players. Where are you at with Nate Bjorker and both when they were hired did you like taking that bold risk? And then has anything changed to where we are today, you know, with 15 games left in the season? Yeah, I was fine with taking the risk uh, because I was one of those people that was really fine with moving on from Nate McMillan. Um, I think people sometimes get it twisted because it didn't always used to be this way in sports. But, you know, guys aren't always you don't always fire somebody or move on from somebody because they did a bad job. You just do it because it's time. And, you know, Frank Vogel, no one would argue that Frank Vogel is a bad coach. It just felt like maybe it was time to move on. Uh, no one, I don't think, would say I, there are some people on the Internet that would say Nate McMillan's a bad coach but <laughs> that, that are really anti-Nate. Yeah. But when you look at the body of work, clearly the guy has produced results and been a competent NBA coach. It just it felt like it had run its course. It was time to move on. So I, I was fine with from that standpoint. Um and I think it's really, really unfair to judge somebody in just their first year. Um, but you look at the way that things have gone for this team, and I, I think you can argue this is the first Pacers team that has really underachieved in a long time. I mean, I, I, I don't even know what you go back to, because if you really look at the last four years, I think you could argue that all of those teams either achieved two or beyond preseason expectations. Absolutely. Then you had, you know, you had the Paul George broken leg year, which was kind of a wash. Um, and then all of those other years, you know, 2013, 2012, they were, they were Eastern Conference contenders. 2011 was a nice year. They go back to the playoffs. I mean, you, you've got to go at least 10 plus years to find a Pacers team that has underachieved the way that this one has. And, and yes, there are elements of that, 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 you know, weren't necessarily Nate Bjorkman's fault, the injury situation, um, basically, you trade Oladipo for nothing for, what, four weeks uh, because you're waiting on Karis Levert to come in. So there's a, a month or however long it was where you, you were without anybody there. Yeah, about seven um, weeks, actually. He returned yeah. seven weeks. Okay, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that was that's, that's a tough period to go over the course of the season. And I, I, I think what you run into here is that it's really hard to have a coach that's learning on the fly – with a group that mostly knows how to play with one another. You know, um, I, I think it would have been easier if Nate Bjorgren had come into a situation where there was a complete roster overhaul and everybody was new and, and they were all kind of feeling their way around together as opposed to a group that, you know, yes, there are some new faces like Levert that, that have kind of come into this, but for the most part, uh, you know, that this group is familiar with one another. So uh, it's kind of a cop out to your question, Scott. I, I mean, I really don't know what to think about Bjorkren. Um, I think this team clearly is underachieved and he's going to have to do more and, and figure some things out. But at the same time, I, I think the Pacers have a, a personnel problem with uh, based on the philosophy of how they want to play or maybe how Nate wants to play. And, and, you know, Kevin Pritchard in the front office and the head coach, they have to kind of be on the 
the same page. And I, I think Nate McMillan said something, uh, I think it was last year that really stuck with me. And I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he said that, you know, I, I basically play the style with the personnel that I'm given. And yes, Nate mm-hmm. had a certain style that he seemed to always kind of play. Um, but I think that's the case here with Bjorgren as well and finding pieces that fit what they want to do. And, you know, Domas Sabonis, are you really maximizing what you have there in this system, particularly on the defensive side of things where you can't really hide him? Uh, you know, things like that. There's a lot there. I want to go back to the coaching thing, mainly because you mentioned uh, Frank, too. I didn't know anybody outside of the front office that felt it was time to move on. He has run its course, and I still don't think that was the right decision. With Nate, I can see it either way. This is, I think, how I would have done it, though, talking about McMillan. The fact that they had already promised him this season, meaning his contract is guaranteed, the fact that you know it was going to be a wonky year, crazy year, um... And you're not going to have a full training camp and all of that. I get some players were unhappy. There's no doubt about that. But I think he's the one I would have went into this season with. And if you start over, you have a fresh slate coming this summer going into next year. Now, I know if it's inevitable, what are you waiting on? And that's the argument against it. But you're right, because Nate Bjorkman is put in this crappy situation where you're not having a full training camp. His top score gets injured four games in. Um you kind of have Oladipo hanging by a thread here. You know, do you trade him before the season? Do you trade him in season? Well, you know, every single day he's having to answer about Vic's knee because Vic doesn't answer for him. I go back. I don't think, Frank, I don't think that change was the right decision. And I hesitate thinking this was the right decision now. But I get why Kevin wants it. He, he wants new people, fresh blood, and to mix things up. Yeah, what kind of surprised me about, and I, sorry, I, I didn't want it to come off as I was defending the Vogel move. I I was just trying to say that I can understand how NBA teams operate when it comes to that, where, you know, not every guy that loses his job is he loses their job based on merit. It's just that they feel like the relate, you know, it's kind of like when you're dating somebody and it's not that it's not that things are going poorly. You like her, she likes you, but you know, you're 28 years old and she's 29 and you're kind of thinking to themselves, well, you don't think you'll ever marry her and she doesn't think you'll ever marry you. And then it's kind of like, you know what? Hey, this was a good run, but let's go ahead and see other people. Maybe we can grab coffee sometime, you know, once every couple of months, like that's kind of, sorry if that's the worst analogy ever, but that's kind of how I felt like uh, maybe they felt about uh, the Vogel situation. And and clearly that seemed to be a bird thing. What I'd never understood about that was then elevating McMillan. Cause you'd feel like if you wanted a new voice and all of that, you wouldn't just elevate somebody that was already on the staff. You know what I mean? There you go. Um, yep. that, that's what kind of confused me about the rationale behind that. But with McMillan um, in hindsight, you know what, Scott, you might be right. Um, Cause I was, I was all gung ho about it. Uh, they got completely undressed by Miami in that series. And, and I think that was really what was hard to come back from, even with the heat going to the finals and being competitive, uh, against the Lakers um, to get kind of embarrassed like that in, in four games and easily swept um, where, it, you know, you had the one game where you really had a chance, but the, the other three, it felt like they kept them at arm's length the entire way. I think that's what really stuck with, with Pritchard in the front office and made them feel like they had to make the move. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Going into the bubble, they had no plans, obviously, to make a change. That's why they, during the pandemic, opted to give him that one-year extension to kind of float him along. They had to kind of give four-month contracts additional to other people just kind of to get through that season. But then I think just embarrassed is the right word. The fact that this team has done decently well, 
clearly overachieved over these last four years. I think every one of those seasons, like Vegas, I would always joke would set the um, you know over under a win total at like thirty five or thirty seven, <laughs> and it was almost free money. I'm looking down forty five, forty eight, forty eight. Yeah. Like this team is always going to do that. Well, not always now. And the biggest challenge I think with the McMillan years was he never got to see his roster to its full potential. That was the biggest thing where I did feel for Nate, right? Because two years ago it was Vic. Last year it was Jeremy Lamb, and then Domas not even showing up to a bubble, and a non-committal, essentially, Victor being there in the bubble, where he wasn't quite all in, wasn't going to play in back-to-backs. So that's where I feel bad for him. So now we move forward to this year, and you're right, Nate trying to implement all new things, and you have just a two-week training camp then players continuously go down and having to adjust on the fly. And I did think it was notable very early on as you had s- several players, specifically I think the point guards, um, with Malcolm Brogdon, TJ McConnell, would would take any moment they could with the media to hi- highlight how brilliant this Nate was and how he was really a player's coach and he would listen to him. I always found that interesting in the first couple of weeks of how they singled out that where you could tell at least they appreciated a new voice and wanted to see things differently. I do think that you need to have somebody that is a little less maybe old school and drill sergeant and and Nate McMillan is cut from the old cloth, right? And it's worked for him um, in a lot of different places and it, it worked for him really for the most part here until you know, suddenly it, it stopped working for him. The best um, the best thing I can say about what Nate does is he comes in, sets order, and steadies things. Look at what he's doing in Atlanta. Yes, he's a new voice, but he's really steadied things to the point where I think they're the fifth seed right behind the Knicks right now. Um, and I don't think yeah. anyone saw that coming. Yeah, and what I kind of struggle with with this Pacers dynamic is, look, I, I have all the respect in the world for Malcolm Brogdon, especially who he is off the court and his intelligence and yeah. I think he's a great guy. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, if you're an NBA team, let's say you're the Lakers. Yeah, you need to pay attention to what LeBron James is saying. If you're the Clippers, you need to know what Kawhi is saying and making sure that relationship is staying tight. You know, if I'm the Pacers, Malcolm Brogdon shouldn't be calling the shots for me, <laughs> you know, for my franchise. No offense to Malcolm Brogdon, but he's just not that level – a player, and I get, I, yeah. I get that it wasn't just Brogdon that was unhappy with the McMillan thing, and that, that there were others as well. But there was Vic he was kind and, of the, yeah. he was the face of that whole thing, though, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't think I'm stepping out of bounds to say that. So, I think again, I think you kind of need to find a happy medium, and that's really what the Pacers have struggled with. I mean, we're not to harp on the McMillan situation, but it's kind of the same thing with him, where. Um, you need this happy medium between the Bjorgren offense and the McMillan offense where, yes, you need, you need to be able to shoot threes more and, and do all of that, but you can't you know, be like the McMillan offense where it's just a two-point offense in today's NBA. You can't do that. Um, so I think in kind of evaluating like where the Pacers go from here, it's, it's trying to find the happy medium in things because it feels like they've done kind of a series of hard corrects where they, they've tried to jerk the wheel and – it would be easier to just kind of slowly transition into what you're trying to do next instead of these hard, you know, wheel jerks, if you will. Yeah, I kind of see the Pacers similar to IU, both in their underachieving, but also we're the shooters. Like, this is an Indiana basketball team. I, this is a thing I've wondered about for several years. They've just never had that a couple, at least, a couple of those knockdown badass three-point shooters that scare other teams. Now, Doug is sort of in that conversation. He doesn't scare you, but he can be a good three-point shooter. That's something I'd like to see moving forward change. 
Yeah, me too. Um, and I think that's the name of the game. Look, you don't have to go out there and, and shoot 50 a game or anything like that and just throw it on up there. But you, you do have to be a little more potent than, uh, than what they've been. And, and it's, it's one thing to attempt a bunch of threes. You have to actually be efficient and accurate. <laughs> and that's also something that, they, that they've struggled with here and uh, will need to change for them moving forward. But, you know, honestly, Scott, kind of taking like the, the long view of this whole thing, I don't even know if this season in particular is most of the reason why the apathy is where it is. I, I think it's just this is the, the sixth year or fifth year in a row where it's very clear that this team has a defined ceiling. And I think that's where the frustration kind of leaps in as well, where, you know, fans can kind of put up with that for a little while. Like the 17-18 team was great. It was refreshing. And yeah, they lost in the first round, but that was a really fun year and a fun ride. And they were competitive and they, they overachieved and all that. But you know, you can you can do that for a little while and be the little engine that could, but then when you know the result kind of remains the same, even when the faces change, I think that's when fans begin to check out a little bit. It's it's a lot like a football team that just goes eight and eight, nine and seven every year. Tennessee um, Titans, and that's there kind you of, are. Yeah, that's where it feels like the, the Pacers are right now. Yeah, and I think your decision moving forward starts with that center position because you're right. You b- bounce around this roster, you're seeing individual development. But there's not going to be significant improvement from, let's say, the entire roster to the point where all of a sudden they become better than the Nets, better than the 76ers. And quite honestly, that's just because of star power. And you need two to three of those all-stars slash superstars um, to compete. And so, yeah, while continuity is nice, you also need to to shake things up a little bit. And I think it begins right there with Miles Turner and Sabonis. And I don't think there's an obvious path forward because Sabonis, at present, is the better player. Turner, meanwhile is almost more important, you could argue, to the defense. So if you do move miles, you have to shake up the defense. And I go back to to even what I said in the offseason before we saw this season play out is I think the biggest change that was for the worse, the biggest mistake Kevin Pritchard in the front office made was not bringing Dan Burke back for the defense because there was nothing wrong. They were consistently a top-10 defense. Now they're a bottom-tier defense, not getting it done. And now, you know, over these last 10 games, giving up 122, 25 points per game. Yeah, of course. And, you know, everybody misses uh, Dan Burke, not only for his defensive acumen, but his, you know, in, in-game you betcha. interviews with JJ. Yeah, <laughs> those are the best. kind of bluntly tell you exactly what was going on. That was the like, one of the highlights of the broadcast. But, um, no, I, I totally agree. And, and you know, it's been this like three year seemingly discussion of, okay, Sabonis or Turner, Sabonis or Turner. And they've really tried. And I think we have enough of a sample size to just say, look, you got to move on. You got to move on from one of them. Um, and, and it's a weird situation because I agree with you. I, I think pound for pound, Sabonis is the better player. But I think on the open market, Turner might have more value because you can plug Turner in just about anywhere. Sabonis, you know, kind of needs to be catered to a bit. Um, and, and you have to be, it has to be the right situation to make Sabonis work. Anybody, any NBA team could use Turner's skill set and what he could do. You can airdrop him on any NBA roster seemingly and, and kind of hit the ground running. So, um, it, it's a tough decision for Pritchard, but I, I think it's a decision that he's going to have to make. Uh, I, I think originally going into this year, and I don't know this, you, you're way more tapped in when it comes to sources and all that. I, I believe that this was kind of a trial year to see how this group would do um together and then of course you have the Warren injury and then the Oladipo trade and then I I I wonder if they were originally thinking okay we're going to run it back with this group because they tried to line everybody up um contract wise and prime years wise 
But looking at how this season has shaken out, I, I think it's pretty obvious, or at least it should be obvious, that the Pacers need to do something to uh, shake this group up. Um, and you can still keep most of it, but I, I think the most obvious change to make is uh, Turner or Sabonis moving on from one of them. Derek, the core five are all under contract through next year. Everybody but Warren amongst that group is under contract for two more years. Can you imagine Pacer fans just accepting, oh, yeah, let's run it back for at least another year or two? I don't think they would. I think they want something different now. Yeah, I would hope so. Because um, I, I think, you know, if, if if the Pacers right now are where the Knicks are, or even where you just mentioned them, where the Hawks are, sure. I, I think you could, and let's say they, they even got it, they even won a first-round playoff series, as crazy as that sounds, because it's been so long since they've done that. I think you could definitely argue and defend the decision to bring everybody back and see, hey, let's let's take this group with a healthy T.J. Warren and give Levert a full year and see what they could do. I think you could definitely, you know, decide to do that and sell it. Um, but with the way this team has performed, even with the Warren injury, I, I think you just have to decide to. It, it it's just got too that Sabonis just doesn't look like he really fits with what they're doing right now either, and so. You know, if, if you move on from either him or you move on from Turner, then I think you can also make some tweaks and adjustments because, you know, those guys, I'm glad that they're they're good buddies and, um, you know, they've tried to make this work, but it, it just kind of feels like an oil and water thing. The trouble with Sabonis is he's just so integral to what they're trying to do, especially offensively. He's the central yeah. hub. And so if you're trying to do something differently to remove him from the equation, oftentimes they're at their best this season rolling with him. That's why you see him staggered with the first and second unit because I, I really like him with that second unit when you have him rolling with T.J. McConnell, Edmund Sumner, sometimes Aaron Holiday. And maybe that even brings up the next thing here is what are we – my biggest question outside of the obvious of the center position is what are you doing with Aaron Holiday? Because the first-round pick has shown great flashes. He, a couple weeks ago, had back-to-back games where he led them with like 20 points and then 22 points. And then I take – Wednesday night in the win against OKC, a team that is terrible. And he's the 10th guy off the bench. We see O'Shea Brissett, who is just signed by the team, play 43 minutes. And Aaron Holiday barely plays half of that. That's where I get a little concerned about Aaron Holiday and in that, is he part of the future plans? Because more and more, I don't think he is. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things like, um, like with Jacoby Brissett with the Colts. You know, the Pacers say all these great things about him. And then their actions say otherwise, you know, like his playing time or, or where he's slotted on the bench. And the Colts kind of did that one for set. They're like, oh, yeah, he's great. We think he's a starter. Well, if, if you think he's a starter, why are you paying Phillip Rivers $25 million? You know, why, why is he just coming in to sneak? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. It tells you uh, a lot it, more about what they're doing elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And so, um, you know, and I, I think part of that, too, is that they, they know that other teams have come calling about Aaron Holiday and have been interested and in, in that he is a tradable piece. But I, I think, again, it's it's kind of like what we've been talking about with Sabonis and Turner. I, I think at this point, you have enough of a sample size where it's time to bleep or get off the pod. So if, if he's part of the future, great. Let, let's go ahead and, and do it. Show us. Um, if he's not, then you got to move on. Um, and, and you got to do something else and, and shake it up a little bit. And I, I'm just fascinated, Scott, to see what's going to happen this offseason because I, I kind of agree with you. Pritchard's never been afraid trade-wise. That's where he's clearly been the most aggressive during his – executive career 
And um, look, I don't, I don't think the Pacers are going to blow it up or anything like that. They're, they're, they've every move and everything that they've done the last couple of years has been building this core and kind of lining up these deals. But I do think you're going to have at least a, one move, if not two moves, mm-hmm. that really kind of shake up, you know, how this team is going to look entering twenty one twenty two. You have to. I don't think you can go in with the same group. And I think to the point of what this roster makeup aligns with Nate Bjorkren, I think we're starting to see even more of that, right? We want to see more Edmund Sumner, um, the O'Shea Brissett types, the length, the athletic, the speed. Many guys on this roster don't fit that build. And so maybe you'll see Kevin Pritchard in this front office correct to that a little bit. There are places elsewhere um, of guys that you can make do, but even Justin Holiday kind of fits that build of, of versatile guys that can play multiple positions, defend multiple positions, and also have that high basketball IQ because Nate especially loves to change things up often, whereas in years past under Nate McMillan, I always thought the telling quote, and you could take it one of two ways, right, was that the Pacers, I think it was Doc Rivers who said this, the Pacers do vanilla better than anyone, meaning you, they're so predictable, but they are very good at that. Yeah. Yet at the same time, that's not necessarily maybe the best thing. You want to keep and scare maybe some of your opponents a little bit. Be intimidated. Yeah, and it's it's tough to be intimidating when you just you kind of mentioned at the beginning of the conversation you don't have a guy, you know. Um, it's it's a nice collection of talent, but really what the Pacers have is they have a bunch of B to B minus players. And in this league, if you really want to contend, you need an you need a couple of A's, or you need at least need somebody who has the potential to be an A. And I'm really high on Karis LeVert. Like I think Karis LeVert's going to be a nice player, but I think Karis LeVert's ceiling is like what Oladipo was in 20. 20- 18, you know, like a, a fringe all NBA 13 type player. I think Levert can get there. And, and even that I don't know is good enough in today's NBA to, to truly be a contender. I will give the front office credit to the, what they've been able to do with Paul George since, right? So you turn yeah. him into Sabonis and Oladipo, both perennial all-stars when they are healthy. And Levert, I think, can be that same way. Where this franchise has struggled over the last 10 years is everywhere else, meaning finding players in the draft and developing them, finding players in free agency and turning them into something, right? Like you can, TJ McConnell's great, but he's nothing franchise changing. And so that's the next step that a small market team like the Pacers have to grasp with because no, they're not going to get that superstar or anything. That's why it was so important if they could get Gordon Hayward this past off season, because those type of players just don't come here in free agency. And I think that's the next step for this team to take is actually hit on players in the draft. And maybe Goga is Aaron to an extent. Um, but outside of that, it's been awful. The fact you have to pay OKC to get off of TJ Leafs contract. That's been, I think my biggest frustration with this team over this last decade. Yeah. And especially when you look at, you know, Ananobi and Collins and, and some of the, <laughs> some of the other players, I, you know, I, I hate to harp on the TJ Leaf thing, but, um, you know, he, that was one of those picks that, that and Tyler Hansbrough, I think were the two picks since I've been watching, covering whatever, following the Pacers. Those are the two picks that even on that, on draft night, you said to yourself, this isn't the right selection. Like it, it just, it, Hansborough's ceiling was bench player. And that's, of course, what he ended up being. And you, you had all of these great franchise-level point guards, Holiday and Lawson and, and all these other guys. You know, Lawson, when, you know, when he was good, he was good. Yeah. Um, and then with Leaf, you, you, know, you had all these other players that I think could have developed into really important rotational or starter-level players for you. And instead, you kind of 
you know, took a Hail Mary swipe at a, at a guy that uh, may have had a, a pretty good ceiling, but the problem for Leaf was that he had no floor. You know what I mean? First, in, in order to... His to floor, his feet were always on the floor. floor. Yeah. His feet were always on the floor because he had no ups, couldn't defend, and his three-point right, shot yeah. completely lost all confidence. The draft yeah. pick I go back to a ton, Derek. I do understand the Hansborough purely because of Larry Bird's explanation of where they were at. Remember, that was right after the brawl, and they're trying to rebuild it with certain type of guys that they don't have to have any concern for, and they realize they can get productivity. But I agree. They needed a point guard. Could have addressed it with a number of picks. But I keep going back to the 2012 draft, and this is not one we just look back at and say, oh, what could have been. We were in that, I was at least in that draft room with several other reporters, and we were like, this makes too much sense. That one was, I think, the Draymond Green one, and instead they go Miles freaking Plumley, who you knew wasn't going to produce, and now he's out of the league. Yeah. That was not inspiring. And when you're picking, you know, 18, and if I, if I remember right, Plumlee was like 22 or 23 or somewhere Further, there. He, Solomon, Solomon Hill, right? I mean, you know, it, it's not usually a, a great group of guys uh, where there's just a bunch of no-brainer guys in there. But I, I do think that there were a couple of cases where the Pacers, you know, even if just, let's say, one of those three um, picks ended up hitting – they'd be in a lot better situation than, than kind of where they are now. And I, I think Pritchard has done an admirable job um, given the sense that, you know, he is, he has not been dealt great cards. And I think for the most part, he's stayed on the poker table or he's kept the Pacers going. Like they still have a little bit of a stack of chips to work with. Um, but at the same time, the, the draft stuff is just, it's, um, it's not good. There's just, there's just no way to put lipstick on the pig. He, he has not drafted well. No, and you're right. Hitting one of three from that position, which they're basically always at, 18 to like 26. If you can hit on one of three, that's respectable. The problem is they really haven't hit on many at all um, recently. And then the other thing to keep an eye on, I guess, of concern, right, is that now when you then get these stars that you drafted or acquired, then they want out. And that Mm -hmm. you start looking from within with the franchise and the front office, um, if it happens again, then that's I think is a red flag when you have Paul George, Oladipo, and then X player wanting out. You got to look at the culture from within and what is wrong. No, for sure, um, and it, it's a tough spot to be in. Uh, this is a franchise that um, you know really has been. I, I think somebody on Twitter uh, sent me this earlier this week. It's it's the okayest franchise in the NBA where. <laughs> You know, I, I think there's a respect level that the Pacers have never truly bottomed out, and they've really they they haven't been terrible since you, you got to go back to the '80s. Repeat our um, stat, they, Derek. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> the, the, they have not had, and this means ever owned. They not traded away or anything like that. They have not had a single digit draft pick since George McLeod in '89. So you know, you have to go back a, a long, long way um, to to the, the next most recent team is San Antonio with with Tim Duncan um, in ninety whatever year that was ninety seven. Um, so I, I think all of that is commendable, but at, but at some point you have to show some progress and you have to be moving forward. And if fans don't feel like you're moving forward, that you're just spinning your wheels, and that's when the apathy kind of sets in. And, and that's, again, you know, kind of tying a bow on this whole conversation. That, that's right. kind of where the Pacers are right now. And it's tough to get excited about a team that doesn't seem to have any forward momentum. Yeah, it seems like a group you could turn on, 
first two quarters, watch it, enjoy it, and know then fourth quarter they're probably going to lose because that's the other thing. They've been outscored in 19 of the last 24 fourth quarters, which bodes well well if you want to do well in the draft, does not do well if you want to pick up fans and entertain during this uh, current time. Derek, I appreciate the time. Good uh, voice of reason to bounce ideas off of and uh, get a feel for where everybody is at at this point because I think you're completely dead on that things have to change, and and I'll be curious to how – Kevin Pritchard reacts to all this as an executive in his previous history. He was a wheeler and dealer, especially at the trade deadline with the Pacers. Not so much after his first couple of years, he, he kind of remade the roster, but has not done any um, dramatic moves other than the ones he's kind of forced into with Paul and with Vic. I, and I think we're in for a really uh, a much more exciting off season than the season that is about to kind of crawl to a close here for this team. So at the very least, at least we have a summer to look forward to. And you know how it is, Scott, in this town, hope springs eternal, right? So we'll see. It's amazing <laughs> what things have done for IU right now in Bloomington. Interest level is off the charts right now just because of, I think, the coaching chain. Appreciate the time, Derek. Thank you. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Fieldhouse Files, and I'll talk to you again soon.